All right. So as you know, if you've been here lately, we've been talking about all of the Bible's unsung heroes uh, in this study entitled Under the Radar. Last week, we continued that study after our one-week break over the holidays. We continued our study of the Bible's greatest figures who flew under the radar. And though they aren't as detectable, maybe, as those who do get the spotlight, the sermons, uh, the major emphasis in Scripture, even though they don't get those things, they are definitely those who left an immeasurable imprint on the story of Scripture. You see, we have discussed that we, not, we may not be able to be an Esther in our life. We may not be able to be Paul or Moses or Peter, but we can be Mordecai. We can be Luke. We can be Shifra, Pua, and Jehoshaphat. We can be like Andrew every day of our life. Even though these characters don't get the fame, the headlines... Without them, their famous counterparts wouldn't have been a fraction of what they wound up being because of these unsung heroes. Because Mordecai was persistently humble in his faith, he was able to save the entire nation of Israel from genocide. Because Luke preserved the life of Jesus, the life of the church, and the life of Paul, we have some of the most important parables and some of the most important details of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also have our only inspired record of church history, and we got to experience and read about the greatest missionary who ever lived in Paul, because Luke preserved those things. Because of Shifra, Pua, and Jehoshaphat, because they feared God, an entire generation of Hebrew men, that would one day grow up to be the leaders of Israel, they were saved from infanticide. And because of Jehoshaphat, Joash, the only remaining royal descendant of the line of Judah, was saved from his own grandmother. And then last week, we discussed that because of Andrew bringing people to Jesus, Peter would go on to be one of the fundamental and foundational leaders and pillars of the New Testament church. We discovered that a child's lunch was able to feed thousands and thousands of people. And we learned that even Greeks can be followers of Jesus because Andrew brought others to Christ. And all of this, all of these lessons have been teaching us that we each have a vital role to play a function to perform, and a role to live out in the body of Christ. And that some of us need to be those who are persistently humble. Some of us need to be those who preserve the pattern and the truth revealed through God's Word. And some of us need to be those who fear God regardless of the consequences. Then lastly, some of us, excuse me, every single one of us need to be those who bring others to Jesus as we become His hands and His feet by going and doing likewise this year. And with that, we are ready to begin our study tonight. Yet again, we have one of the most important and crucial figures in all the Old Testament. We have a man who is described to have fully believed in God, to have wholly 
it wholly believed in God with his whole self. A man who didn't just agree with the majority like everyone else. A man who because of his faith stood up for the power of God regardless of whether it made sense. We have a man whose faith punched his ticket into the promised land. It's my favorite spy story of all time. We are going to be studying the life and the impact of one of the Bible's greatest unsung heroes. Many of you have guessed it. We're going to be studying the life of Caleb. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 13, that's where our study tonight is going to begin in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 as we start to look at the life of Caleb. But to provide a little context for our study tonight, I want you to realize that the Israelites are obviously on their pursuit of the promised land. They have left Egypt. They are on their way. They've been through a lot already. And here in Numbers chapter 12, to provide some context, we have this very interesting story of how Miriam, the brother of Moses, was punished for challenging Moses. Why? Because he married this woman who happened to be an Ethiopian. And what happened to Miriam? If you're not aware of this story, it's a great story for us to read and learn. But Miriam was given leprosy by God for this challenging of her brother she then repented and then was able to come back into the camp but not after seven days she had to wait outside the camp for seven days Marion was outside of the camp the same way as any other unclean person would have been in the Old Testament but after that seven days were up they continued their travels from Hazaroth onto the wilderness of Paran as the end of chapter 12 indicates in verse 16 and so here we have the Israelites being led by Moses, continuing on their journey into the wilderness of Paran. So that starts us off in a good way as we start chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Would you read those with me? Chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel. We'll stop right there. So here in our text we've already discovered that uh, the Israelites have reached the borders of Canaan. They have approached the borders of Canaan. They are very so very close to the promised land that they were aspiring for, the very place that God had promised to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis, that they had promised to Moses, that Moses had promised to them, this was the destination for which they were led out of Egypt to go to, to approach Canaan. Here's the Israelites. They have almost made it to their journey. You know, you're on a road trip. You're almost there. There's these indications that you're just almost there. If you ever drive to the beach in Alabama, we have I-65. Go straight down the middle of it all the way. And there's these different landmarks as you start to go. Well, there's the barn. You know, there's, you know, there's this item. There's this and that. And we all know what that's like. Well, here are the Israelites. 
Here are the Israelites about to enter Canaan. They are seeing all of the signs that they are so close as they get close to the wilderness of Paran. And so the, Can- the, the Canaanites, there they are, and the Israelites are just on the outside looking in. And so God tells Moses to do something. He says, Moses, I want you to go to each tribe, each of the twelve tribes of Israel, and choose leaders from among them. Notice how the text calls them leaders. Isn't that interesting? Because many of us know what's about to happen with these so-called leaders. Anyway, he calls them leaders. Moses is to go to each of the tribes and pick a man and to send that man to spy out the land. All of them who were heads of the children of Israel, the text indicates. A little side note, it's interesting, I always studying this, hearing about this in Bible class, the 12 spies, right? Well, Moses does a little something here, and he throws in a 13th. We know this one. He is Joshua, the son of Nun, according to verse 16. Moses adds Joshua to this list of spies. But you know what's often lost when we look at this story is the fact that these 12 men, these were their leaders. Of all of the people of Israel, of all the Hebrew nation, these were the men that were indicated as leaders, as the heads of the children of Israel. It just goes to show you that things aren't always what they seem, are they? It just goes to show you that when it comes to leaders and when it comes to different things that appear one way, It doesn't always add up that way. In fact, this is a theme throughout the entire life of Caleb as we continue throughout the story. Notice verse 6 of chapter 13. In this list, he's listing all of these people that were named as the leaders, as the heads of the children of Israel. And in verse 6, it says, From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, So here we have Caleb, the mention of our unsung hero tonight. But how interesting is it that Caleb is a descendant of Judah? That he is from the tribe of Judah, the line that would one day lead to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we talked about that a few weeks ago, how important it was for Jehoshaphat to save Joash, to maintain the line of Judah so that one day Jesus could come. And here yet again, the stakes are ever so high as we look at the life of Caleb. Caleb, this descendant of Judah. And as we progress throughout our study tonight, I want you to think about the implications of such a statement, of such a thing, as we think about the life of Caleb. But as the text continues, we see that Moses is going to give these leaders, these heads of the children of Israel, he's going to give these 13 men a task. A task to go out and to spy out the land on behalf of God's people. And he gives them a task to observe all the things that they see and even bring some things back for show and tell almost, really. And the text continues in verse 17 of chapter 
13 continues by saying, Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up into the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage. And bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rahab near the entrance of Hamath. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Sishai, and Tamai. The descendants of Anak were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eskel where they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they carried it between the two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eskel because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there, and they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. All right, so according to Moses' desire, they went out and did everything that he asked them to do, to go out into the land, to observe all the things that they saw, to bring back all of the fruits of the land so that we might see the goodness that is in it, to encourage us, to inspire us as we go into this land to conquer it. Look at all of the cities and the strongholds and bring back any information that you can bring back. And so that's exactly what they do. They walk around and they, they, they see the land, they observe the land, they spy out all of the details of the land for 40 days. That's a long time. 40 days they were looking at the land and learning everything that they could learn. And in that 40 days, guess what? They saw it. They saw what the fuss was all about. They saw the greatness of the land. They saw the fruit. They saw the milk. They saw the honey. They saw the beauty that was therein. But, for most of them, there was something wrong. And the text continues in verse 27. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us, it truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. So let's stop at our text right there. Even though that they had pomegranates falling from the sky, right? I've never eaten one of those. Looks really creepy to me. I will pass on a pomegranate every day of the week. But some of you like those. It's interesting that they mentioned that was one of the things in the land of Canaan. Pomegranates, figs, milk, honey. All of the riches were there. Even though that was all there, guess what? There were people there who seemed to be intimidating. There were people who inhabited the land that says, the text says that they were strong. It says that the cities were reinforced. It was fortified with large buildings, with, with walls. 
It says the descendants of Anak were there. We're going to see who that is in a second. It says that the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and all the other ites that you can possibly think of are in the land of Canaan, and they stand in between God's people from entering the promised land. All the ites are there. And it seems like a mission that's a fool's errand. And they think to themselves, there's no way we can overcome all these great cities. These great people, these huge people, these great nations when we are simply Israel. I mean, who, who, are, who, are, who are we? We aren't trained to do battle like many other nations around us. We aren't some great army. We, we have no training. We're not as powerful as the armies of the people that we're trying to conquer. All of these people are, are very powerful in their armies, in their different wars that they've engaged in. We haven't been in battle. We've been in bondage for years and years. And basically, these men are coming back and saying, Hey, Moses, sorry to tell you, we came all this way. We've been through all of this that we've been through. You know, we walked uh, through the Red Sea. That was pretty cool. Uh, we, that was awesome. I'll always remember that great moment. Uh, you know, the pillar of fire, that was pretty awesome. Uh, having manna every day prepared, you know, that, that, was, that was awesome. Uh, it's been real, but uh, you think you're going to go in that land. It, I'm not going. I'm not going, and I don't think anyone should go. I, 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 I have seen that the land is as good as advertised, but it's probably time that we just turn around and head back because there's no chance we can make it. And then someone speaks up. Someone speaks up in verse, uh, chap chapter 13 and verse 30. Someone speaks up and it just so happens to be our unsung hero. Verse 30 it says, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. In the midst of all of these leaders, these you know, heads of the children of Israel, supposedly, there is only one man that is speaking out. We know Joshua is also there speaking out, but Caleb is noted as the one speaking out, as the one who quieted the people before Moses. You realize how many people this could have been, but here Caleb is quieting them before Moses, and he tells them, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? What are you guys talking about? What do you mean we're not able to go into this land? Have you not seen what we have already faced and conquered? We can totally do this. Moses, let's go right now. Not only can we overcome them, but we are more than capable. We are well able to overcome it, the text says. And so what happens after that? In verse 31, it says, But the men who had gone up with them said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. 
And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. And so here we see that these other 11 men are totally without any faith in the world that they can accomplish this task. They say, Caleb, did you not see those people from Anak? The Anakim, as they're later referred to as. Did you not see how big they were? We were literally grasshoppers in their sight. We were literally just something that they could just step on. That, that the people that inhabit this land devour all that come in their way. They would devour us in a single swoop. And so the children of Israel begin to allow fear to overtake them. The children of Israel began to believe everything that they had said. And they begin to say to themselves, you know what? Slavery and bondage is better than certain death. Slavery and going back to Egypt, and if we just get a new leader that can lead us back to Egypt, all will be well again. They gave us some onions to eat on. They gave us some you know, scraps to eat on. I, those pomegranates look great. But at least I'd have my life. Let's go back to Egypt. The text says the whole congregation of Israel begged. They were pleading to go back to Egypt. Let's see how God responds, how Moses responds, and how the others respond. In chapter 14, in verse 5, it says, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But... Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread." Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Let's stop right there. So here in verse 5, we see Moses and Aaron, they, they know that uh, this verbiage, this conversation coming out of these people's mouths about returning to Egypt and all of the spies who did not have any faith, they understand how much blasphemy is taking place right here and right now. This outright lack of belief in God's power that they had witnessed all throughout the wilderness, this was blasphemous. And so what do they do in verse 5? It says that they fell to their faces. They, they fell prostrate on the ground. You know, for us to get an image of this, you ever around somebody who says something that they shouldn't have said, says something that you would never say, and you start looking up at the sky, and you're like, oh, I hope there's no clouds, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're about to get struck. You ever do that? You ever had that conversation? You know, we might do it as, you know, for one reason or the other. 
But Moses and Aaron understand what could happen. At this talk right here, the ground could literally open up and swallow them whole. It happened before. And so Moses and Aaron hit the ground because of the certain blasphemy that's falling out of these people's mouth. But Joshua and Caleb. But Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes because they knew that the Lord had prepared this land that looked so great that He had prepared it for them. And they said, if God delights in us, if we find favor in God's sight, then the land will easily be ours. And so they plead with the nation to not fear, to not rebel against God, because Anak and the other ites are going to be like bread. Do you realize he's saying these, these nations are going to be like food to us? We're not going to be grasshoppers in their sight. They're going to be food for our consumption. They don't have any protection when it comes to a fight against the living God. Why would you fear these mere men? Joshua and Caleb are asking. And so this in the text is where the nation of Israel says, Wow, you know what? You're right. God has just blessed us. He has been with us every step of the way. He effectively plagued the greatest world power in Egypt. He successfully led us out of bondage. He parted the Red Sea. He let us walk on dry land. He led us with a pillar of fire all throughout the wilderness. He's been there every step of the way. He's done a host of other miracles. You know what, Caleb? You know what, Joshua? I think you're right. I think we got this. Let's go. Is that what we find in the text? No. Chapter 14 and verse 10, it says, And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Let's stop right there. So instead of being inspired by this rare faith and devotion that was being displayed before them by Caleb and Joshua, the whole congregation, the whole assembly of Israel wanted them dead. Stone them! Because these two guys are crazy. And so what happens next in our text, many of us have studied this, God's had enough. God has had enough and is just about ready to wipe the entire nation off the face of the earth. He says, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you, he's talking to Moses, a greater nation and mightier than they. God is fed up with Israel. He's done. He can't take it anymore. His patience is long-suffering, we know that. But there is a point of no return. And the Israelites have just about hit that point. So Moses, the leader of Israel, pleads with God to forgive them, to be patient with them, to be long-suffering, to be abundant in mercy, to pardon them, even though they had great wickedness. And that's exactly what God did. God pardons them. In verse 20 he said, I have pardoned according to your word. So he does exactly what Moses pleaded for him to do. But he does make a couple of promises. One, 
that is great, and one that is very scary. Let's start in verse 22. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who reject it's, who rejected me see it. And so let's stop right there. That's the first promise that he makes to the children of Israel. Because you have witnessed my power, because you have seen all of my raw ability to do whatever I want to do, because you have been able to observe my greatness and you still do not understand how easy I can defeat all these nations, because you still think the descendants of Anak are bigger than Jehovah God, you don't get to enter into the promised land. Because you have rejected me, God says. There's the first promise. second promise is in verse 24. He says, But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. Caleb, of the tribe of Judah, it says, because he has a different spirit within him, and because he has followed me fully, I will allow him to enter into the promised land. You realize out of the possibly, at this point, millions upon millions of Israelites, God says he's going to allow Caleb to enter. Out of the great number of Israelites, because of his faith in God, Caleb and Joshua were able to enter into the promised land. Remember, Moses, at this point, has not hit the rock yet. At this point in our story, Moses has not hit the rock yet. That doesn't happen for another six chapters in Numbers chapter 20. So here we have three people, three, three groups that are able to enter the promised land at this point out of all the nation, out of all the millions of people. Some say two to three million people at this time. Out of all those people, Caleb and Joshua are able to enter. And so Moses, he, he saves Israel, right, from certain death, from certain, you know, absolute wrath from God. And it's time for him to speak to the people. He's, it's time for him to talk to the people. That's what he does in verses 26 and following. But we're going to start in verse 29. It says, The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the, and Joshua, the son of Nun. You shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. It says, all who were numbered, according to your entire number, all of you are going to fall in the wilderness as carcasses. That's pretty vivid language, isn't it? You're going to be as carcasses in the wilderness, except for Caleb and Joshua. Well, there you have it. That's a great story, right? That's, it's the story's over. That, you know, there's nothing else to do when you come to Caleb. Caleb has just punched his ticket into the promised land, right? 
Surely the Israelites are going to prevail against these enemies of the land. God promised that they would. Caleb said that they could, and God blessed him for it. So surely they're just this close from getting the land, getting the milk, getting the honey, maybe getting some pomegranates, right? They're this close. Surely in the next couple of weeks, in no time at all, before you can even blink, Caleb is going to be able to kick his feet up and enjoy the spoils of victory. Right? No, it's not that easy. Not so fast, some people might say. Because of Israel's unfaithfulness, they were forced to fight all the surrounding lands in battle. And God made a promise that all of these people would fall as carcasses throughout the wilderness. And so God made the Israelites go around in circles around Canaan until, sure enough, all of those people over the age of 20 died and were no longer alive, but had fallen as carcasses. And with that, let's turn to Joshua chapter 14. This is what's happening all the way from Numbers chapter 14, chapter 15 and about there, all the way to Joshua chapter 14. This is what's happening. God is... is letting all these other people that did not believe in him fall, you know, fall in the wilderness. And before we get into our text right here, I want all of us to imagine the next part of our story, of this story tonight. As if this older, wiser man who had aspired for something their entire life was finally getting it. You ever see somebody who's wanted something for so long finally get it? You know, some kids think it's been light, you know, light years since they got the gift that they asked for. I asked for a PlayStation 3 for at least 20 years. No, I'm just kidding. You know, I asked for PlayStation 3. We had a GameCube. I waited on that, and when we finally got one, there was already a PS4. But let me tell you what, that PS3 was the best thing I ever had, right? No, it wasn't the best thing I've ever had, obviously, but for our cases tonight. Think of this as some, some person who's been waiting for something their entire life. They've waited a lifetime, and they're finally able to have it. Think about some man who is surrounded by his children, surrounded by his grandchildren, surrounded by his family, and he's telling them all this story that they've already heard before so many times in their life. But this time, it's a little bit different. This time when he's telling the story, it's a little bit different. Why? Because this time when he tells the story of when he was a spy all those years ago, this time he's on the exact spot when the story first took place. This time when he's surrounded by his family and, and all of his loved ones, he is showing them the land that he spied out all those years ago and he is standing in the very place where his faith in God punched his ticket into the promised land. He's sharing this moment with his family. With that, let's go to Joshua 14, verse 6. It says, Then the children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, 
You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. So here we have Caleb finally getting to reap the benefits of his faith. All these years later, he's witnessed that millions of people come this close, but not making it. Here we have Caleb, and he's made it. And he says, when I brought the news back from when I was spying out the land those 40 days, he says, I brought back the news that it, as, it, as it was in my heart, it says. The news that he brought back was the news that was in his heart. You see, because Caleb didn't have the ability to foresee the future. He wasn't a fourth teller. He didn't have any premonitions. He didn't have anything but the faith in his heart that God was going to provide. And while the hearts of the rest of Israel were melted by the liars, by the faithless spies, it says, he says, my heart stayed true to the living God. And I wholly followed the Lord my God. That's what he's telling his children as they're standing on the very land that was promised to him. Verse 9, So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. And he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while in Israel, wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old. As yet I am strong this day as on the day Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. And so he says here in this text that, Moses was the one who promised this land to me. He does that in Deuteronomy, by the way. God promised originally, obviously, but Moses reminds them in Deuteronomy. He says, now it's finally time for me to inherit. He's talking to Joshua. He's saying, Joshua, remember this promise? And they're reminiscing together. The Lord, he says, has kept me alive through the battles, through the wandering, through all the days and nights. The Lord has kept me alive all these 45 years since he promised this land to me, and here I am, 85 years old. And even though 85 is a big number for us, 85 to Caleb was just as same as 40. Because he said, I have the same strength this very day to be able to fight in battle as I did the day that Moses sent us out to spy. As we see throughout the rest of the Pentateuch and as we see these many examples of Caleb, we know every single time that he's mentioned from then on out is to mention how God was going to give him this plot of land. In Numbers chapter 26 and verse 65, God reminded Moses that all the nation of Israel would die in the wilderness except for Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. In Numbers chapter 32 and verse 12, it says yet again, God reminding them that all the nation of Israel is going to die 
because they had not wholly followed him. But Caleb was going to live and get his land because he did wholly follow him. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 36, Moses is retelling the events of Numbers 13 and he tells Israel that Caleb is going to see the land of promise and no one else is all throughout the rest of the story. There are constant reminders that Caleb and Joshua were going to be able to walk on the land which they had spied. And so Caleb says, God preserved my life. He preserved my strength. He preserved my family all up to this point right here, right now, where we are right now. All these years later, 45 years later, God has brought me to this point. All so that He could fulfill His original promise He made to him that we already read way back in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 24. 45 years later, the time had come. Verse 12, Now therefore give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Hebron therefore became an inheritance to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And so we see that Caleb inherited the very land, listen to this, where the Anakim lived. Who were the Anakim? The people back in Numbers chapter 14 and 13 that those spies said were giants. That those spies said there's no chance that we could ever overthrow them. Guess where Caleb is planting his stake where he lives? He plants it right at the heart of the land where the Anakim lived. The giants that were to make Israel look like grasshoppers, they said. Caleb is planting his land on that very spot. He tells his children, his grandchildren, his, his family around him, they talk so much about how great these cities were. They talk so much about how big these people were and, and how mighty they were and how they were going to devour us and step on us like grasshoppers. But God showed all of us how much greater He is. And Joshua blesses him and his family and gives him this land of Hebron. And it says, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. As we begin to bring this message home to us tonight, the question is, how does this help us? try to find our place in the body of Christ. How can we be like Caleb, the spy? I mean, you might, you might be with us tonight thinking, God has not called me to spy out an enemy land. That would be pretty cool, but I've never heard that call. 
I've never been asked to do such a thing. How can I possibly be like Caleb in my everyday life? But the fact of the matter is, not all of us can be Moses, who led Israel from Egyptian bondage. Not all of us can be Joshua, who led Israel after Moses left and conquered all the enemies of Canaan. We may not be able to be Moses or Joshua, but every single one of us can be Caleb. Caleb, who the Bible says, wholly followed the Lord God. Four times throughout our reading, we saw that Caleb did this very thing to be one of the greatest unsung heroes in all of Scripture. Numbers 14 and verse 24 32 and verse 12, Deuteronomy 1 and verse 36, Joshua chapter 14 and verse 14, we saw it specifically say that Caleb wholly followed the Lord God. You know, something we haven't discussed about Caleb is the meaning of his name. Some are confused about this. There's been a lot of conversation struck up a lot of uh, division on what the name means, what the name Caleb means. Some have said that it means simply dog. Uh, that's not correct. Some have made sermons out of this and, you know, built their whole lives on the fact that Caleb means dog. No, it doesn't. Caleb is a compound word that means wholehearted, according to the original language. Isn't that the perfect name? Doesn't that perfectly represent and embody who this character tonight that we've studied was? He was wholehearted in his faithfulness towards God. And the life of Caleb teaches us that you don't have to be in the headlines. You don't have to be in the spotlight like Moses and like Joshua to be a leader. You know, if you ask anyone in that day and age, anyone in Israel at the top, you walk up to anybody in their whole number and say, who's your leader? They should have said God, but they would probably say, Moses. And after Moses died, if you were to ask them that same question after he passed away, you go up to them and you say, who's your leader? They would probably say, Joshua. And it is the case that Moses and Joshua were the leaders, that they were appointed by God to lead the people of Israel. But the life of Caleb teaches us that sometimes you don't have to be the leader to be a leader. All it takes is a heart that is wholly invested in following God invested in following God even when it doesn't make sense. And all the logic is telling you that the enemy is greater than you. Even when 99% of the people around you are against you, when they hate you, when they despise you, when they speak evil of you, even if it is your friends, your neighbors, your relatives that you grew up around, even when those same people around you call for you to be stoned, in the case of Caleb, even when it takes 45 years for God to fulfill His promise, 
even when all of that happens. A heart that is wholly invested in following God will never give in. And that's what we find from the life of Caleb. This is the lesson that Caleb's story teaches us tonight. That if we're ever going to be truly faithful to God and faithful followers, instead of giving in, we have to be all in. And that is exactly what Caleb's story teaches us tonight. You see, when it comes to being a Christian, all of us want to claim to be all in, right? All of us think that we're all in. We're all in to Christianity. All of us want to say about ourselves that we want to be seen as someone who is all in for Christ. I mean, I, don't, I, I go to church, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't go to parties, I don't curse, I don't do this, I don't do that, I do do what God told me to do. I'm at a Bible class on a Wednesday night. Surely that means that I am all in for the cause of Christ. There are innumerable things that you could be doing tonight. So why not just call yourself and myself tonight all in? But tonight I want to challenge each of us, myself especially, by asking each one of us a simple question. Are you all in? Really? Are you really all in? Are you all in when it is easy? When it comes to your spiritual life, the church parking lot doesn't have a single space left to park. There are events here, there are events there so much your schedule can't even keep up with it. You can't keep it all straight with all the things that are great things going on at the church. The auditorium is so full on Sunday morning it feels like the ceiling's going to pop off. There are souls being led to Christ left and right. Is that when you are all in? Are you all in when you have that great job? With that great steady pay and you're being promoted it seems every time you blink. You're just being promoted, the, the bills are going away, the, the, the debt is going away, the pay increases are coming your way and your bank account is going up. Is that when you decide to be all in for God? Are you all in when your family situation is great? When you're growing a family and you're getting pregnant and you're having children and those children are raising up and they're going on to do great things. They're going to college. They're getting jobs. They're having children themselves. Is that when you're all in for God? Are these moments the only time you're all in? When your family is great, when work is great, and when your church experience is great. Because I'm sorry to tell you, but if that's the only time that you are all in, that means that you're not all in. 
that's when all in turns into only in if. I am only in if my family situation is good. I am only in if work is going good for me. I am only in if church is good. And when this happens, we are no different than those 11 spies who had not a lick of faith in their entire body when it comes to God's power. When this happens, we are just like those Israelites who saw the descendants of Anak, these great fortified cities surrounding. And we see those same things in our life surrounding us. We see fortified cities, we see sin, we see all these different things surrounding us, and we look at them and we say, we can't do it. We cannot do it. We are like grasshoppers compared to this trial. This trial, this virus, could sweep us in one fell swoop. We can't face it. And just like those faithless leaders suffered a horrible fate, if we're only all in when things are great, we'll suffer the same fate. Because they were all in when things were great. When that sea was parted, I'm all in. I believe. When they were getting led out of Egypt, I'm all in. I believe. But every single time they ever faced a single tribulation, a single trial, a single pain, a single discomfort, they were only in if. And is there any difference in us tonight. You see, because their physical carcasses were left in the wilderness. And if we are that way tonight, our spiritual carcasses will be left in utter darkness. But the life of Caleb teaches us what it means to be all in. You know, if we're going to be all in, if we're going to do anything for the cause of Christ this year, as the years go on, if we're going to do anything successfully, we have got to be all in. I want you to just think for a moment about those first century Christians. How all in were they? They were all in to the point of death. All of them were challenged in ways that none of us could ever imagine. Most of them were persecuted, and many of them were martyred. But whether it was all, most, or many, every one of them understood Jesus' words in Revelation 2 and verse 10. You see, because Jesus says, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Of course, many have thought this meant that if we simply are faithful till we grow old and die, that's what that means. That's definitely one part of the meaning of that passage. But in the context of Revelation, in the context of the first century church, this literally meant be faithful until the point of martyrdom for my sake, for the name of Christ, if you are all in, then I will give you the crown of life.
So I ask you again, are you on that level of all in? Or does your all in have an only if to it? Think about the name Caleb. We talked about how it means whole heart. Is your whole heart given only to God? Or is your heart simply like a piece of pie cut up in all these different pieces to be taken by everybody else? Because that's not what the life of Caleb teaches us. And if that's the case, it's time to be all in. You know, if we're ever going to come out of this pandemic and into the future, to succeed as a congregation, we're going to have to have people that are all in. We're going to have to have people that when it comes to following our shepherd's lead and the things that they tell is good for us, we're going to have to have people that are all in. When it comes to this year and our theme of go and do, we're going to have to have people that are all in. When it comes to reaching out to the people who used to occupy these pews, we're going to have to be all in. And I hope that because of the life of our unsung hero, Caleb, tonight, we have an audience who is ready to be all in for Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Thank you for your attention. Our brother Gene Clower is going to lead us in a closing prayer. Bow with me for a moment of prayer. Our most holy Father in heaven, we're so thankful to you. So thankful that we can assemble together and so thankful that we can study your word. So thankful that we can look at an individual and that you have taught us about that was wholly dedicated to you. We recognize, Father, that there are times when our faith is not what it ought to be. We pray for your goodness. We pray for your forgiveness. We pray for your guidance with us. That we may be wholly dedicated. Given over completely to your will. Father, we're so mindful of those who are ill tonight. Those who are suffering from the virus that's going around. We pray your blessings to be with them. We pray your blessings to be with Greg Bonades and his father. His father's quite ill, and we pray your blessings to be with them. Father, so many things are troubling us at this time, and we want to be dedicated, committed, fully all in to your word and to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.